I think in politics sometimes we panic one one week to the next. It's a bit like changing over football managers um, too quickly. I think sometimes it, you know people need to get used to having a new first minister. We've not had a sort of a proper electoral test as well. When a lot of people do start paying attention to these things, nobody can deny it's been a difficult time. But I think Hamza's done well, um, and it was always going to be a tricky time after the previous first minister when Nicola left the scene after 15 years as first minister and deputy. First Minister. That was Stephen Gethins, a former MP from North East Fife who was hoping to get back into Westminster via a new seat covering parts of Dundee and Angus. Fans of niche political pub quiz questions will know him from winning in 2017 by two votes in North East Fife. He was, however, soundly beaten by the Lib Dems the next time round in 2019 and I thought had rejoined civilian life quite happily. But no, it seems he is mad keen for another tilt at it. He tells us about the experience the new seat, what's going on in the SNP, how Dundee United was not a factor in his thinking, and whether there's any bad blood with other SNP figures who had a go at that seat too, including Serena Cowdy, who's married to outgoing local MP Stuart Hosey. We'll hear more from Stephen Gethins shortly. Also this week, Rishi Sunak has been outlining his plans for the government's year ahead. The King's Speech is where it all will be. It may well be his last, so let's pick one subject and stick with it energy. It's the thing driving the Scottish economy, it's made places like Aberdeen the centre of the known universe, but it's changing fast. Adele Merson is here too today. She was speaking to community figures in the Granite City this week, seeing what might happen next. The fears, the anxieties and the hopes as we either squeeze every drop of oil out of the North Sea or move on to something completely different. We'll get to that and a chat about the other hot topics soon. But first, as promised, Justin Bowie has been speaking to Stephen Gethins a few days after he was named as the SNP's candidate in Arbroath and Brotty Ferry constituency. It's going to be a tough general election when it comes for the SNP in Scotland, with Labour nipping at their heels, regardless of what happens to the Conservatives across the UK, which, as polls suggest, is looking pretty cataclysmic. Justin began the interview by asking why he's returning to the fold after four years away from the political front line. Sometimes people look at what's going on at Westminster and they think, why on earth would you want to go back there again? Potentially, you know, subject to a really important election. Well, there's a few things. I think for me, there was a degree of unfinished business. You know, we're still out of the EU. Scotland's still not independent. Yes, it's a challenging time, I think, for the, the SNP. I think most people would acknowledge that. But that doesn't deny some of the really big underlying challenges that people face, that the country faces. And... You know, and it'll be nice to be standing in Arbroath and Broughty Ferry, somewhere we've got close links. It's, it's nice getting out and about. I've already been out campaigning and meeting people again. And, and that's sometimes overlooked a bit when you get out campaigning, you get out speaking to folk and you think that you can make a difference. And I know people from all political parties will, will, will think that. And it's, it's good that we've got that multi-party system. But I think I've still got something left to give. Was there anyone who played a key role in helping you decide to run? You know, Did you have any doubts about going back to Westminster? Was there anyone behind the scenes saying, look, you really need to go for this? Yeah, there were a few. Um, there were, I mean, members of my family, you know, who also live locally were really important. Um, in that, but also members of the party. But the most important discussion was with my wife, you know, because this is something that in politics, it's it's um, I'm the one that's put myself forward, so no excuses for me, but sometimes it can have a really big impact on your immediate family. So that that is and always will be the most important conversation that I, that I had in terms of um, standing again. The selection contest to become the candidate was obviously a very competitive process. 
there were three different candidates, one of whom was, of course, you know, the wife of the current incumbent MP. Since you were picked as the candidate, have you had discussions with your rival contenders? And have you talked much to Stuart Hosey, who is obviously going to be stepping down from the seat that mostly covers the area that you will be hoping to represent? So yes, in all of that. In fact, within minutes of the... Um, of the result being announced, I got the loveliest calls from both Serena and from George, so Serena Cowdy, who stood, and, and George Bruce, two fantastic candidates, incidentally. And this is the thing about selection processes. They're really hard because you're standing against people and you're, you're in the same party, you believe in the same things, but they're a really important part of our overall democratic process. And also, you know, on the same day as well, a good chat with Stuart and a lovely message from Stuart as well. So... I have to say, Serena and George, it was a hard-fought campaign, which is good, but Serena and George could not have been more thoughtful and collegiate, both in the way they approached the campaign and in the way they've they've approached my candidacy since. They've been super supportive, and I'm really lucky to have them both on board, as well as having Stuart's support as well. So I've been really fortunate. You were obviously previously the MP for North East Fife until 2019. Now you are running in a broken Brody ferry, What's prompted that sort of change of patch? You know, a cynic might suggest that a broken Brody ferry is likely to be a safer seat than, you know, North East Fife, which is obviously currently in Lib Dem hands. So, so what's prompted that change? Well, first of all, we have to remember there've been boundary changes, quite significant boundary changes. I've also, you know, look. Our Broth and Broughty Ferry, just like North East Fife, is a wide and diverse constituency, I think. And actually, incidentally, we can talk about this in a minute. I don't like the name all that much because I don't think, although our Broth and Broughty Ferry are both amazing, it doesn't adequately, I think, reflect the way the constituency is, but wasn't my my decision. I have and have always had, you know, have closer um, family links to Dundee's, you know, so it's... And also North East Fife was much further down the road in terms of selecting their their candidate. But this is a constituency that I've got deep links to. I can't claim to have deep links to all of it because it's a big, diverse constituency. Nobody can ever make that that claim. But it's, it's an area that I've lived in, worked in, campaigned in. So I know it. I know it well. Um, some people thought it was so I could have a closer link to Tanadice, but of course Dundee United you know, sits outside the constituency and Dundee United train in St Andrews, so that wasn't I can't I can't claim that. What would constitute success for the SNP at the next Westminster election? You know, moving to a more national conversation, most polls suggest the party could face heavy losses, but do you think the SNP can avoid that? Well, we're a year away, so what counts success? Well, winning counts as success, um, but we're a year away. And that's a year to campaign, you know, getting out, chapping doors. It's not just the SNP that will be doing that. That's a year when we put all the parties' policies under scrutiny. So the SNP, in terms of a cost of living crisis, putting that there, campaigning to make the case for independence. And Labour will have to keep good a number of their promises. And the Tories have a track record to defend at Westminster. And, And some would argue, and I'd be one of them, not a terribly good one. So there's still a lot to go. I mean, most people expect this election to be in a year. None of us quite know when. But in recent years, for those of us who've been involved in politics, and Justin, you've been covering it, a lot can happen in a couple of weeks, never mind in the space of, say, 10 or 11 months. But what you can do, and you can often help some of these circumstances, what you can do to help yourself is get out, speak to people, 
campaign on your record, campaign on what you believe in. So I think there's still a long way to go for the SNP, but there's a long way to go for the other parties as well, of course. Given how high the watermark is for success for the SNP at Westminster elections now, is it really feasible that you know the party could lose, say, 10, even 15 seats and still claim to have a mandate for independence? Do you believe that's feasible based on the First Minister's vision for independence? In the UK system, I'm somebody that supports a proportional representation, but that's not the system that we have. In the system that we have in the UK, the party that wins a majority gets to set out its agenda and its um, manifesto commitments. And the SNP will be publishing its manifesto and independence will be part of that manifesto. So this isn't so much a challenge for the SNP. This is a challenge for the system that, that we have, whereby a winning party that wins a majority is not seen as being in a position to implement its manifesto commitments. I don't think that's something you can blame on the SNP. You know, the SNP won 56 out of 59 seats when I was elected in 2015, but that was able to be overlooked. So look, there's a long way to go. The SNP's got a big job to do, but I think the First Minister is quite right in the in, 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 in what he's set out there. What are your thoughts personally on some of the difficulties that the SNP has endured over the past year? It's been a tough year for the party, not just in terms of that, that polling shift, but you know, there's a lot that's going on. Hamza Yousaf has come into a very difficult role taking over from Nicola Sturgeon. So uh, as someone who's perhaps been outside the fold a bit, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think anybody can deny it's been a tough time. But that's what makes or breaks political parties. It's not, you know, I joined the SNP when it had three MPs and there was no Scottish Parliament. So what makes a party is if you can pull yourself together and do well when things are hard, not just when they're easy. And that's what makes a party. It's what makes campaigners and a lot of really good and experienced people um, there in places like Dundee and Angus. You see that regardless of whether or not the party's been doing well or not so well, they've been out campaigning and working hard. So I think there are a number of lessons to be learned there. I think Hamza has come in at a particularly challenging time. I think he's done well. I also think there's always a difficulty when you have that shift. You know, you've gone from Nicola, who was first minister and deputy first minister for, I think, 15 years. And when you got that shift to Hamza um, and people were still figuring out who he is, what he stands for. And I think what's been positive is that more people get to know Hamza. You've seen his sort of approval numbers ticking up a wee bit as well. That's always going to take time. You were always going to get that shift. And I think in politics, sometimes we panic one one week to the next. It's a bit like changing over football managers um, too quickly. I think sometimes, it, you know, people need to get used to having a new first minister. We've not had a sort of a proper electoral test as well, when a lot of people do start paying attention to these things. Nobody can deny it's been a difficult time, but I think Hamza's done well and it was always going to be a tricky time after the previous first minister when Nicola left the scene after 15 years as first minister and deputy first minister. It's interesting you talk about you know you know that changeover from Nicola Sturgeon at the top of the party to Hamza Yousaf like, and the next Westminster election no matter what happens for the SNP is going to involve some major changes. There's a lot of senior names not least Stuart Hosey who will be stepping down and retiring at the next election. What kind of impact is that going to have on the party? Because, like I say, no matter what, there's going to be a, a lot of new faces at Westminster. There will be. It's always difficult to lose good people. Stuart Hosey's an old friend of mine. He's been there since 2005. He's done a fantastic job. Big fan of Stuart's and the, the great work that he's done. But people also need the opportunity to move on. And if you look at some of those who are moving on, they've put in a shift. You know, and, and also they've been commuting up and down to Westminster every, 
every week. It's a hard job. And, and I know it's one you wouldn't think it sometimes because people fight hard to, to, to get there, but it's a hard job. So Stuart's going to be missed. Others are going to be missed, like Philippa Whitford, Ian Blackford, you know, um, Mary Black. These people are going to be missed. But I think a party has strength and depth when it can show that, yes, people are allowed to move on and you can say that you can miss them. I'm going to miss Stuart. But also the party needs the opportunity. You know, you've got some great new candidates who are coming through and that is the nature of democracy. And I think it's the nature of a party that has strength and depth. And I think the SNP has strength and depth there. From your own perspective, where do you see yourself in the long term? Obviously, the ideal goal for the SNP is to essentially be rid of Westminster and to not have to go to Westminster anymore. So do, do you see your, your long-term future at Westminster while the party is there? Or would you ever fancy, say, a tilt at Holyrood in the future? Oh, it's, I mean, look, if you're an SNP member of parliament, you'd never rule out Holyrood. It's important. You know, it's, it's, it's where um, so much happens. But don't forget, my background is in international affairs. Throughout my career, it was, you know, so I used to work in Eastern Europe and in areas affected by conflict. I worked in the European institutions. I'm now a professor of international relations. So my life outside politics, what what, what I bring in terms of my experience, is focused on international affairs. There's a lot the Scottish government can do, but there's also an awful lot that takes place at Westminster, where I really, really see myself long term as part of that effort in setting up a newly independent state. Um, and there'll be, there'll be a lot of opportunity and a lot of opportunity for international engagement. I wonder, it's not for me to decide, but um, maybe long term, what, European commissioner, something like that. So um, I, th- I think that there's a, but that's, that's, that's just me. Um, so I, I see myself continuing that international work. Um, I think it's somewhere where I've got experience, but let's not forget, if you're a constituency MP, your most important job is to your constituents and to campaigning locally. That's your day job. But longer term, I think Scotland's got a big international future. And I think the way that you realise that and you unlock it as an independent country. That's my view. Others disagree, but that's the way I'd see it panning out. And just finally, in, in 2017, you memorably retained your seat in North East Fife by just two votes it was the closest election in the country. If that were to happen again this time, and I'm sure you'll be wanting to win by much more, but if that were to happen, who are the two key voters in that constituency that you would hope would tip you over the line? My great-auntie Margaret is going to turn 100 in September next year, so if they can hold on for the election, I hope that my, my granny Margaret gets to vote, Margaret Geffens, so I hope that she gets to vote. So I know you wanted two people to tip me over the line, but I think that would be... Um, a nice one to, to, to have. And then maybe maybe um, maybe my, my godmother, Manti Morag, as well. That would be a nice one to have as well. Um, so they'd be nice ones to kind of tip me over the line. Look, they all count. When I won by two votes, it was hard. It was a hard-fought campaign. I have to say it was the it was the one seat, I think, that bucked the exit poll that night. So um, it was hard work. But what that told me is every single vote counts and hard work counts. You, can't, you cannot beat... Um, getting out and about and speaking to folk and that's something that I'm looking forward to to doing over the next wee while it's something I missed it's something I I enjoy and so you always try and get out and speak to as many people you can't speak to everybody but trying to get out there and speaking to as many folk as you can and I was out in Carnoustie on Saturday having some fantastic 
chats with folk and I'll be continuing doing that over the next few months. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Stephen Gethins talking with Justin Bowie, who's here with Adele and me now. So what do we make of that then, Justin? 2019, Boris, Brexit, unfinished business, Granny Margaret. Yeah, it was an interesting interview and Stephen, he's an interesting figure. He, he talks a lot about his um, background in international relations. And one thing I think is particularly interesting, especially given that it came up in the interview, is that he is running in this new Arbroath and Brotty Ferry constituency. That That is likely to be one of the SNP's safest seats, even if they have a bad night. So there is a scenario here where, and Stephen obviously will not want this to happen, but there's a scenario where the SNP have a bad night and Stephen becomes an MP and given his past experience, he would automatically be seen as quite a, a senior figure within the party then, wouldn't he? Because he would be in a safe seat. He does have a strong background. He's been an MP before. So it's one of those things where the next election could end up working out quite well for Stephen, no matter what happens on the night, because he's very likely to end up as an MP. Yeah, well, he, he may be not quite as far down the line as a as, uh, European commissioner quite yet, but he's obviously, he's thinking long term, isn't he? Adele, what uh, stood out for you there? I think what stood out for me was, you know, we've obviously spoken there about his, his background working in sort of areas of conflict and things, was that he does come across as a very collegiate person, a very kind of sensible pair of hands. And you could see that the party would think that's an asset at this time when things are so turbulent for them and chaotic to have this person that, I mean, Justin asked him there about the problems facing the party. And it's quite amazing how he almost convinced, managed to convince us that, you know, it's all, it's all going to be fine and this is the making of a party, you know. That was kind of what I took from it, just that he's very, um, something reassuring about, about him, I think. Yeah, he's definitely tries to, um, cultivate that air where he's he's the sort of a grown up in the room or something. But the the problem that I think that he faces there, and this is this is a problem for the SNP in general, I think, is that so many people who've maybe been slightly turned off by the SNP's slowly slowly approach to independence at the moment, maybe don't want someone collegiate. Maybe they're they're searching around for someone who's a more of a zealot. He doesn't sound like a a zealot, does he? He doesn't sound like someone who's going to go down to Westminster and knock the place left and right. Yeah, you're right there in terms of I guess. We're talking there about him being collegiate and sensible, but we look at, I guess, political discussion and debate these days and it's not always sensible. It's very rarely sensible and collegiate. So you're right that with how heated everything is, maybe it, there is an argument that actually you need uh, somebody that's going to come in very gun-ho and quite party political. Um, remains to be seen, I guess. Some people will favour one option and some fa- people will favour the other. Yeah, I think it's interesting that during the campaign to select the SNP candidate, the idea of Stephen as somebody who was quite well-respected both within the party and across the political divide was an idea that came up a lot. It's something that, in, you know, in the background, a lot of SNP figures said was very positive about Stephen. But, but you do wonder, have times moved on from that you know there's a lot of discussions around Brexit that were happening years ago and that Stephen would want to bring up again but after the next election if we have a Labour government is Brexit going to necessarily be such a hot topic not necessarily but maybe it's still not a bad thing for the SNP to have MPs who can be seen as reaching across the divide and even if it's going to be difficult to convert those unionist voters into independent supporters they have to try and Perhaps somebody who is seen as, you know, a uniting figure isn't the worst person to have. Talking about bridging divides, what is it with SNP MPs and Dundee United? I can't quite get my head around it. He's, he's another one. He, he likes to reach for the football analogies. And it's maybe why he gets on so well with Stephen Flynn, his his boss, who, let's remember, st- represents a seat in Aberdeen, which is still very hard to get my head around. 
Anyway, enough enough crystal ball gazing about elections, which haven't even been called yet. Let's talk about um, the man who's really facing a problem when it comes to the vote, whenever that is. Earlier this week, I covered the latest plans by the UK government to extract more oil and gas from the North Sea with new annual licences. It contains the paradox in conservative thinking at the moment that we can maximise fossil fuels to help us get away from them, um, which is a talking point all on, on, all on its own. On Monday, MSPs from Holyrood's Economy Committee launched an inquiry in Aberdeen about the future of the shift from fossils, fossil fuels to renewables. BP was announcing a big bonanza in the North Sea as well that day. Adele Merson of the P&J was there speaking to community groups after all that to see if the people in charge of policy and business chime with what folk are thinking right there in the city. So Adele, what kind of reaction were you getting when you were speaking to people yesterday? I found it a really interesting opportunity because so often I obviously report on this issue a lot and for quite obvious reasons it does tend to be those big you know oil and gas companies and renewable companies and business groups that tend to have the loudest voice they they have the means to get their message out there they're taken seriously people listen to what they say but i guess what is often lost in that is what do what do kind of everyday people think what do community groups think what do people that perhaps aren't directly employed in oil and gas think and so it was a good opportunity to speak to people with a different perspective on all this i mean i think you could argue most people at the event a lot of them were environmentalist and had those kind of concerns but in general there was a few sort of themes I guess that came across were that they were really pleased to see politicians speaking to them and that they think that needs to continue that rather than just those business groups that you do need to listen to everyday people because every single person in the city is going to be affected by the future prosperity of the city and how this transition kind of is managed and they also feel that I guess I could be guilty of this too when we speak about just transition it's often just this is the move away from oil and gas towards greener energy which is a huge part of it and obviously a huge part of it in the northeast i think what was coming across yesterday was there's a lot more to this transition you know there's lots of things that need to be done like retrofitting homes and getting people the skills to do that and how do you know we have people from like community gardens what's their role in terms of helping people grow their own food and there's just so many different aspects to this transition i think and they were saying that aberdeen needs to look beyond just a discussion about oil and gas and oil and gas jobs and making sure that communities are at the heart of that because I think, obviously people have differing opinions, but I think that I've definitely spoken to people in the past who feel the huge amount of money that's come into Aberdeen and sometimes it would be easy to think you you walk around and you can't always see that. Um, you know, you look at Norway is always the country that's mentioned, but they had their oil fund and there is a feeling that as we move into the green transition, it needs to be how do communities now benefit from this as well? How Because many feel that these big oil and gas companies came in, they got what they wanted and they might just leave. It's about how do we make sure that this transition is working for everyone at all levels of society. Okay, well, I mean, we can take a little moment here and actually listen to a few of the folk that you were, you were speaking to. So in their own words, this is a kind of a, a quick snapshot of, of how people are talking about the subject beyond the boardrooms. Like to see more community involvement. Um, they tend to stick at the higher level rather than coming down to the communities um, and more acknowledgement of what the lower elements are doing, the people in the community are actually doing to help that transition move through locally. 
my thoughts are that it looks needs to look a lot wider than oil and gas jobs because oil and gas jobs don't necess- haven't necessarily benefited communities and there's a lot of communities in Aberdeen that have been really disadvantaged and had um, very unwelcome developments um, imposed upon them like Torrey and the incinerator and the sewage farm and the landfill. Yeah, I think Aberdeen needs an identity beyond oil and gas and it needs to recognise what it already has. I know from research that Aberdeen Climate Action and NESCAN have done is that there is a, is a, is a real concern amongst people within this region about vested interests having too much say in, in the way we transition. People living their everyday lives in Aberdeen. You know, I think a lot of people in Aberdeen don't feel more prosperous now than we did before the oil. Okay, that was um, a quick whistle-stop tour of of the minds of people who are grappling with the thorny subject of how we get away from a reliance on fossil fuels. Of course, beyond that, they're not the ones in power, Justin. It's the the UK government that controls uh, things like licensing. There are clearly ideas in different parties and the Scottish government is looking at it themselves. But what's the what does the direction of travel look like from the top with Rishi Sunak in charge at the moment? Yeah, well, since he took power, Rishi Sunak has adopted what can only be described as a very pro-oil and gas stance. It's perhaps a shift that was taking place over the longer term. I think back in like 2021, around this time two years ago, actually, during COP26, Boris Johnson was talking a very good game about the move away from oil and gas. He was was casting the fight against climate change almost like you know an action movie as you know as we approached the kind of vital moment we had to act right now but months later we saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine and we have seen rising energy prices over the past couple of years as well and that sort of facilitated a shift back to that more sort of gung-ho pro-oil and gas stance in the UK government that's obviously resulted now in Rishi Sunak granting licenses to or saying he will grant licenses to oil and gas fields such as Rosebank so it's one of those things where the UK government has never quite been anti-oil and gas necessarily. They've always been willing to facilitate that industry and to you know reap the benefits of that industry. But they've adopted perhaps a friendlier stance. And there's maybe a bit of a political element in there as well. The Scottish government have moved in a different direction where they want to shift towards renewables. They refer to their move away from oil and gas, obviously, as a, as a just transition. That That's the term they use. And Labour have perhaps adopted a similar stance to the Scottish government, although the two sides will, will fight over whether their stance is more pro-renewables, whether their stance is more pro-oil and gas. But it's perhaps given the UK government space to be seen as the party who are, you know, pro-fossil fuels, pro the kind of old school energy industry. And that gives them attack lines over their opponents to say, well, if you want to keep energy bills down, we're the ones that are backing oil and gas and they are, you know, they're taking the opposite stance. So obviously Rishi Sunak may not be in power for very long now, but certainly that's the stance he's taken for now. Yeah, and it's going to become an absolutely central part of um, the general election as we move towards that inevitable day. But that's it for the Stushi this week. We'll be back next Wednesday with more on the stories behind the Holyrood bubble and how they affect your communities. Until then, thanks to our guest Stephen Gethins, Justin Bowie, Adele Merson, producer Caroline White, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post and all our news brands so that you can be better briefed.